In chapter 14, if you remember, we were shown the promised land which we refused to enter. We did see that there was giants in the land. There were giants, not only battles, but also fruit. But it was the Lord who promised the fruit, and it was the Lord who promised He would be the Lord of the battles. In chapter 15, now as God prepares us, and He tells us in, in the simplest sense, the old generation will not enter the promised land, the land of great fruitfulness. And there will be many, by the way, who will just do the I'm glad I'm not going to hell thing, but really never enter where God really has them, a place of abject and great fruitfulness. Oh, that's just for pastors. That's just for deacons, guys with badges on their names, that kind of thing. But God has a much bigger plan. What God intends is for us all to bear fruit as Christians. And he told us this all the way back in John 15. Jesus himself told us that he had come, that we would bear fruit, that our fruit would remain, and by that the Father would be glorified. The problem is now God begins this process of surgery, of cutting away and carving that which doesn't belong to the promised land. In chapter 15, if you remember, once we've now not taken the land because we refused by a lack of faith, he got us back to the bread and wine. Everything wraps around the bread and wine. And then he speaks to us about what he calls unintentional versus presumptuous sin. He tells us the difference in regards to relationship. And in relationship, he tells us that with every relationship, there will be a protocol, a politic that will come with it. And with every bit of that politic, there will be something beautiful that will come from it. God intends that. Every marriage has a politic. Every relationship. Friends have politic. Parents to children and children to parents have politic. And what may seem like a law is really, in essence, simply protocol. It's just the politic that comes with that relationship. But we gladly submit to it and we surrender to it because the relationship makes it worth it. On the other side, there is that without a relationship, and that is flat-out law. We have no relationship, for the most part, with the government. And therefore, the law that is given to us is a law given to us to kind of maintain a society. But in that, please hear me, we're not motivated to keep those laws in and of themselves, so we have to do something else to do that, and thus punishment becomes our motivation. In the relationship, love should be our motivator. That should be the point. But with no relationship, what happens is punishment becomes the motivator. And what we have now is we talk about, well, tell me the difference between presumptuous sin, as he tells us here, or unintentional sin. We see sort of an unintentional sin, but what does it look like to have presumptuous sin? Chapter 16 is one of the best examples of presumptuous sin. Flat out, intentional, putting it in your hand, let's just do this kind of thing. Now we meet Korah and the gang. This will be, in all honesty, one of the biggest mutinies in the history of the Torah. For over 14,000 people dead from a single event started by a single guy. So read along with me if you would, please. We're going to read through the first 40 or so verses. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohat, the son of Levi, with Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pelet, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. 
They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? So when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. And then he spoke to Korah and all of his company, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and who will cause him to come near him. The one whom he chooses he will cause to come near him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all your company. Put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it a small thing to you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel? to bring you near to himself, to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to serve them. And that he has brought you near to himself, you and all your brethren, the sons of Levi, with you. Are you seeking the priesthood also? Therefore, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. And what is Aaron that you complain against him? Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliav, but they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? That you, well, that you, act, or that you should keep acting like a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us the inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? Well, we will not come up. Then Moses was very angry, and he said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, and you and they, as well as Aaron. Let each of you take his censer and put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. Two hundred and fifty censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense in it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the Lord, I'm sorry, then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I might consume them in a moment. Then they fell on their faces and said, Oh God, the God of the spirits of, of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents with their wives, their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them in my own will, or of my own will. If these men die naturally, like all men, or if they're visited by the common fate of all men, well, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, oh, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up and all that belongs to them, and they go down alive to the pit, <clears throat> then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Is there a part of you, if you're one of those guys, you get a uh-oh feeling inside of you at this moment? 
Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with all of their households and all the men of Korah with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel, who were around them, fled at their cry, and they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came out of the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, to pick up the censers out of the blaze, for they are holy, and scatter the fire some distance away. The censers of these men who sinned against their own souls, let it be made into a hammered place as a covering for the altar because they have presented them before the Lord. Therefore, they are holy, and they shall be assigned to the children of Israel. So Eleazar, the priest, took the bronze censers with those who had burned up, who were burned up, had presented, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar to be a memorial to the children of Israel, that no outsider, who was not a descendant of Aaron, should come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he might not become like Korah and his companions just as the Lord had said to them through Moses. So let me do this. I'm going to run over there really quick, and then we're going to pray. Hold on one second. Think about that. That's like your Selah. Which channel is this one? Well, that's where the yucky is. Let's see if that makes a difference. Can you hear me a little? Oh, see, I still sound... No wonder why. Hello. Is that better? Yay. Yay us. Woohoo. Okay. And this is one, two. Oh, look at that. Okay. Oh. Now, see, I'm, now I'm too loud. Okay. <clears throat> so follow me on this. We are now in a situation where God is actually moving to start weeding out an entire generation of people. Could you imagine that? How awful would that be? Could you imagine for the next 38 years, an entire generation other than two people are going to pass away? An entire generation. And all of a sudden, in this, this becomes our really first major punitive response from God. Now, now hear me on this for a second as we kind of prepare here. Because understand, this isn't just God like having a problem with his church and he thinks he'll just kill a bunch of troublemakers. So understand that Korah, in, in the simplest sense, that there's a Korah in every one of us. That inside every one of us there's a guy a lot like this that God is going to want dead if we're really going to be the person God called us to be and he wants us fruitful. So if I could title this, I would call this Killing the Korah in Me. Or Killing the, killing the Korah in All of Us. Now, Follow me on this, and we'll have to develop it with the first few verses, and there's a lot you can miss. Now, if you're one of those kind of people, and you try to read the Bible in a year, and you get to where there's names, more than likely, at best, you might just speed read it, and you might go, yeah, I got, okay, next chapter. But if you do that, then you miss a lot of the depth that God has, because obviously, the book's big enough, and God is only picking specific things, and part of it is this particular person. Now listen, we read Korah, the son of Izhar. Do you see that there? That's verse 1. Korah, by the way, his name means ice. So if you're like, Korah, Korah, it's like ice, ice. Anyways. And we read that he's the son of Izhar, which means oil, and he's the son of Kohat. 
Now, whoop de doo right? The son of Levi. And then we have these other guys. We have Dathan. Uh, Dathan, by the way, his, guy, his name means like by a fountain or of a fountain. Abira means my dad is exalted. Who names their son my dad is exalted? Do you ever think about that? Well, he's the son. His dad's name, by the way, means God's my father. So I guess it runs in the family. And then there's a guy that we only read of in verse 1 named On. And I'd like to think that, that maybe the reason why On was On was because somewhere down the line he gets off this crew. He's the son of Pelot, which means swiftness. And these guys are sons of Reuben. So in the simplest sense, follow me on this. We have four characters here in this first verse. The leader, the gang, the ringleader, his name is Korah. And then we've got these guys, Dathan and Abiram, the brothers. And on these three guys were sons of Reuben. Now, we do know that this first guy, Korah, by the way, again, he's a son of Levi. He's from a different tribe altogether. But here's the part you might miss. That... His dad, what was Korah's dad's name? This shouldn't be very difficult. Take a look at it. What's his dad's name? Ishar. Excellent. Now, I'm going to read you a verse from earlier in this book in Exodus chapter 6. And as I read you this verse, I want you to listen closely, and it'll be a quick test. Ready? In chapter 6, verse 18 of the book of Exodus, we read this. The sons of Kohat were, and notice that, that, that Ishar is the son of Kohat. The sons of Kohat were... Amram, Izhar, Hevron, and Utiel. Now here's my question to you. You ready? Amram, Izhar, Hevron, Utiel. Which son, one, two, three, or four, was he of Kohat? It was the second one. The sons of Kohat were this. Listen, Amram, Izhar, Hevron, and Utiel. Can anyone tell me the name of the first son? Amram. Amram. Does that name sound familiar to any of you? Maybe because Amram happens to have a couple children too in that chapter. Amram's sons are named Aaron and Moshe, or Aaron and Moses. So get this. The oldest son has a couple kids. The three at least, we know, because they have a sister as well. Aaron and Moses. Second brother happens to have a couple kids too. Or at least one that we know of named Kohat here. I'm sorry, that named Korah. What relationship then does that mean between Korah and Moses? They're cousins. Did you get that? More than likely, Moses is the older, Aaron, even older yet. So get the idea here that these guys were relatives. Which means, by the way, and I imagine these guys probably went through a lot of this slavery, got the whipping, got the beating, but then there was that boy, that cousin of mine that was all the way in the palace, remember that? And then he disappeared and he comes back and he wants to save every one of us. That's the relationship we have between these two guys. But then we have these other guys, these other three, Dathan, Abiram, and On. Can you tell me what tribe of Israel they're from? Close. Was that? Reuben. Yeah, all I heard was, yeah! Yes, the tribe of Reuben. Now, follow me on this. And again, if this sounds like too much technical, don't worry, we're getting into the text here in a moment. But first of all, we have two guys, and they're kind of, in essence, fighting cousins. Or if I could, kicking cousins. And then we have these other three guys that we know of here as Dathan, Abiram, who are brothers, and this third guy, On, who are from the tribe of Reuben. Now, what's interesting, if you will, is that when... The prophecies were laid out back in the book of Genesis 49 by, by the way, the man that we know of as Israel. And he prophesies about all of his children as he sort of offers a blessing. The oldest of his 12 children was a son named Reuben. As a matter of fact, when the baby was born, the name is see a son or behold a son. That's what Reuben means. 
Ruven. Ben means son. Sounds really good. He has the oldest position. Well, until number 11 comes along because that boy's name is Joseph and he has a great deal of jealousy. But he still has an authority, apparently, over everyone else but until Joseph, until Joseph shows up. But somewhere down the line, this boy takes one of his father's concubines and lays with her. And in doing that, it's a position of gathering greater authority than everybody. Now understand, what Reuben did was quite simple. He's like, my position isn't enough. I'm going to take more. That was Reuben. Now, as a result of that, in Genesis 49.3, here's what Dad says about him. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power, but unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed, you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Kind of at the other day, he's like, sides it. He's like, this is what you did. He went up to my couch. As a result of it, he said, though you may have great inspiration and aspiration, you will not excel because you chose to try to get that which wasn't yours. That's the idea here. So you have a guy who's a cousin of Moses with three other guys that are from the tribe of Reuben. How in the world do those guys get talking? Well, that's why God gave us those earlier chapters and numbers you could have overlooked. Remember where he put everybody in a place? Interestingly enough, one of those four standards, remember that's if you held up a flag, if you sort of like, you know, Chronicles of Narnia, and then with like three tribes on each side. On the south side, the south side boys, in Numbers chapter 10, verse 18, the standard of the camp of Reuben, he oversaw those three tribes, which by the way were Reuben, Reuben, half tribe of Gad, ultimately, well, we'll see Reuben, Gad, and um, we'll see here Simeon as well. And we read this. The standard of Reuben set out according to their armies, over army was Elitzur, which by the way tells me that Korah wasn't even the leader of the Reubenites the son of Shadur. Over the army of the tribe of Simeon was Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai. And over the army of the tribe of the children of Gad was Elishaph, the son of Duel. And then the Kohathites sent out. Now remember how God had not only put three tribes on each side of the camp. And if you're new to all of this, understand God, once getting them out of the land of Israel, I'm sorry, out of the land of Egypt, puts them in the wilderness at a place he had promised in Exodus 3. And he wants to be in the center of their camp. That's always the point. God wants to be in the center. And as it's the case, he's like, no, 12 tribes, three of you are going to be here, three of you are going to be here, three of you are going to be here, three of you are going to be here. And then the sons of Levi specifically, because he had three specific sons, one, one, group, one, uh, one group from the sun will be on one side, one will be here, one will be here, and then that last bit will be just Moses and Aaron. Well, guess who gets to be on the south side with Reuben? The Kohathites. Now, what's interesting is the Kohathites were the ones, if you remember when we split you up to do that, they were the ones who had the privilege of all things to carry the ark. They were the ones who got to carry all of the holy furniture. Nobody else got to do that but them. I mean, of the groups that were there, there were those that carried pegs. There were those who carried, you know, the, the, the tent and animal skins. And then there were those who carried the furniture. I mean, of all of the jobs that would have been coveted in regards to the hauling, they got the biggest of them. But it wasn't enough. And that becomes the problem here. So please hear me. As we begin all of this, what we have here is a cousin of Moses and three other guys who basically you kind of get the idea were somehow all on that south side and they were kind of talking. Who does Moses think he is? Now let me remind you, this was the guy who raised his staff with his brother and the ground split, you know, the, the water split and people walked through and all of Pharaoh's army was drowned. 
This is the same guy who stood up, who's constantly been interceding when God says, let me wipe him out. And God is constantly setting up Moses to stand in between them and go, God, please don't do that. Please don't do that. And I wonder what would happen if these guys got to be boss. Sounds like this whole story would have been very, very different and they could have all been wiped out. Aren't you thankful if you were one of them that Moses was the guy in the front? There's the irony in the whole thing. He's the only guy pleading your case and yet you want him fired. Ironically, there's a group of guys here that will get fired. 250 of them. And they'll get fired, seriously fired, by the end of this. So get the idea here. They're on the south side and maybe they're talking. And as they're talking, they're like, hey, who does that guy think he is? I mean, you know, we're all from the same tribe of Levi. We're all Covidites in that sense. Why does that guy get this special treatment? Oh, yeah, but every time he lifts his rod, like quail come or food comes or water turns sweet. Yeah, who cares about all that stuff? Who does this guy think he is? What's funny is, is that Moses doesn't think he's anything. God thinks Moses is something. But these guys, and this is the way it's going to play out. Anytime you find a Kohathite or that Kohathite inside of us, there's always that part of us that is always judging somebody else's intentions as superficial and selfish and self-driven. You know why? Because if that were us, that's what we were doing. Because that's why we're thinking that way. Is that we're already being selfish to think that way. And because we're being selfish, we assume that the other person must be when they're doing that. Oh, well, if I were doing that, that's the case. And it's exposing where your heart really is. So listen. Here's the, here's the situation now. It tells us that there are these guys. That's, by the way, you can see why we won't go through the whole chapter. And it says, notice in chapter 16, verse 1, it says, they took men. Did you see that? And the idea of it, to be honest, is the term that is used often about taking people captive. It's interesting because even in the books of the Timothys, it tells us about a brother who could be taken captive to do the will of the enemy, which, by the way, is dividing other brothers. And these guys now start this little forest fire where they're, in essence, taking captive people, kind of, if you'll pardon me for saying, kind of like a spiritual LRA, if you're familiar with the situation in, in Africa and East Africa. So they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, really wealthy, or I should say well-known men. Now, don't miss this. Now, for what it's worth... A Kohath, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, a Korah will never go alone to a brother. A Korah always loves to gather his gang. A Korah always likes to present his case to people who don't know the whole situation. And there will always be people like that out there for you. You've got a problem with your wife, you've got a problem with your husband, you've got a problem with anything. And it's interesting, the one place we won't go is the one place Jesus told us to. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, listen, step one, go to him and go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And in the Greek, by the way, it's almost impossible to add any more clarity to that. Just you and him, that's it. That's it. Just you and him or you and her alone. Don't gather anyone. Don't start playing judge and jury. You're not Judge Dredd or Judge Judy. It's time for you to start getting this right and you go between the two of you. If he hears you, you've gained your brother, which, by the way, God assumes would be your intent, was to gain them. Not to beat them, not to, def- not to shame them, but to win them. Not to your side, but away from the sin. If he hears you, then you've gained your brother. But if you will not, then take one or two more 
that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. That would be our second step. And not just gathering anyone, people that would be most likely inside that whole situation. You're not gathering a posse. What you're doing here instead is you're trying to make sure that it's clear. If he refuses to hear them, well, then tell the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, well, then they be treated as a heathen, as a tax collector. That doesn't mean you don't let them in the church. What that means is you keep your eye on them and you preach the gospel to them. You get back to the cross. But quarrels will never go alone. We were talking, and you get this. Hey, I've got this concern. Anyone said this? You know, we've been talking, and I have this concern. Does any one of you feel like, oh, goody, you've been talking to people, and they're all concerned now? Well, these people are coming to me, and they're telling me this stuff. Excuse me, why are they coming to you with some concern that they have about somebody else? You know what that's called? Gossip. That's what that's called. It's called being a Korah. Well, you know what people say. What people? I don't know what people. Just people that prove my point say. So we have 254 people here. 250 people. That's how much this one guy has started. Gathered a few of the Reubenites, and now we have 254 people that are standing before Moses and Aaron. Interesting, for what it's worth, this 250... I, I took a look at this just because I'm, I'm the kind of person that I like to look at all these kind of angles just to see. And what's interesting, by the way, is in regards to this 250, in the book of Second Chronicles, at chapter 8, by the way, we see 250. But the first time I see it is in Exodus 30. And 250 is a measurement for the two things that actually aren't beaten and ground like the myrrh to make anointing oil. 250 shekels. For the anointing oil that really validates a king or a priest... You take oil, you take myrrh, which must be crushed, and then you take cinnamon and sugar. And those two items, by the way, 250 apiece, and I think it's interesting, because those are the items, by the way, that they could be slightly ground, or they could just be cracked open and be used. But the one that has to be crushed, well, that one's not 250 at all. And I get the idea here. God's like, well, let me set you up. That's anointing oil, but there are going to be those who are going to want that anointing oil that don't deserve it. Well, we all don't deserve it. But God says, but I haven't picked. So verse 3, it says, They gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and they said to him, listen to this, it almost sounds like they're being kind. You ever have someone do that to you? You take too much upon yourself. For the congregation is holy. Every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Now up to this point, if that was all there was, and it's like, so can I pray for you? I'm concerned you're working yourself to death or whatever. Hey, that would be okay. But that's not where this is going at all. That's that little rubbing of the alcohol before they give you the jab. You know what I'm saying? They're like, but I love you, but God! You're like, oh, okay. Now I know why that was happening. Because you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord. Now can I say, listen, again, Korahs never go alone. And they talk to people who are not involved. Here's it. They recruit people to get involved with a crime. And the crime is gossip. That's what they're doing. Korahs recruit. That's why Korahs have to die. It's easy to call somebody that may not know the situation. And by the way, be careful if you're the kind that's really super sympathetic. Well, you're the soft shoulder because sympathy often comes at the expense of someone else. 
I'm going through this rough time. My husband's this way. My wife's this way. My boss is this way, whatever. Then it's like, yeah, but you know what? Mature people, if we see it in Scripture, in the book of Revelation, they take you back to the lion of the tribe of Judah. They're not busy going, I don't know why God's doing this to you. He must be so mean. I don't get it. And then the end of it all, everybody has a good cry. They watch Oprah. They eat some Ben and Jerry's. And they wind up hating God. And they're fat for it. That's lose-lose. But not only do Korahs not go alone, but rather recruit. They also, by the way, are puffed up, filled with a sense of entitlement. You know, I mean, what makes you any different than me? You know, I mean, you're a Korahzite, I'm a Korahzite. You're from the tribe of Levi, I'm from the tribe of Levi. Aren't we both Jews, for goodness sakes? God's with every one of us. So where do you get off exalting yourself. And there comes the motivation. Did you notice? Now all of a sudden, Korah is laying out why you did something, which, by the way, is not ever been Moses' way. So there's that sense of entitlement and that clear personal motivation. If I were Moses, I would be self-exalting if I did that. Well, you've just done it. Now look at Moses' response. Can I say it's twofold? Verse 4 and 5. Verse 4, when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. He'll do that at least three times in this chapter, by the way. Verse 5, and then he spoke to Korah. Can I say that that is actually the proper way to do it? When somebody comes and they question your motivation, and you know better, and they're like, you know what, we just think you are headstrong, we just think you are self-bloated, we just think you're self-exalting, we just think you are... And of course, the we may be you, him and the person in his pocket, and maybe him and the six people that they have as friends on Facebook, and maybe them and a whole crowd of people, it may be two people, but they'll tell you it's 3,000. You know how that works. And we're all so concerned, but we really, because you're just so full of yourself. And, and understand, I'm not saying this because I'm in the middle of some situation like this, I'm not. But boy, if you're thinking about it, praise God you're here. All right, anyway, but, but hear me in this, is that Moses first, he falls on his face and then he speaks. Now, I'm a natural fighter, so my natural thing isn't to fall on my face and then speak. My natural thing is to punch someone in the face and then speak. And that's wrong, if you're aware of. Or maybe do that, speak, and then fall on my face because I did something stupid. But what if we fell on our face first, before God? said, Lord, is there any hint of truth in this? Because let's face it, you don't have to be sane to speak truth. God used a donkey. You don't have to be clever to speak truth. You don't even have to know what you're saying to speak truth. God knows. Is that any humble part of us? And by the way, I've heard it said, you never really know how humble you are until you're humiliated. I don't like that either. I know there's a part of me that's swallowing that jagged pill as I speak it. He fell on his face and then he spoke and he said to Korah and all his company, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, who he will cause to come near him. The one he chooses he will cause to come near him. Interesting because what Moses is going to say is, do you guys you realize he's already called you to come near him just in a different capacity, but now you want to take a different way about it. Hey, by the way, do you really think that the most important person in the church is the pastor? I don't. The most important person in the church is Jesus. After that, we're even. I'm just seeking to be faithful with what he's called me to. Maybe the Lord just knew I needed this much accountability. But I love what I get to do. In the end of it all, it will not be, 
how much I grew at church. That's not my job. It's how faithful I was to be obedient. Obedience is the one thing God will hold us accountable to. The rest of it's all His anyways. So he says, so here's what we'll do. Verse 6. Take censers, Corey and all his company. Put fire and an incense in the censers and in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. Now interesting, this chapter will be a chapter about censers. Next chapter will be a chapter about staffs. And then he says, and he throws it right back in verse 7. Oh, you take too much upon yourselves. See, understand, Moses isn't saying, you're trying to fill my shoes? You really think you can fill my shoes? Holmes, you really think you got that in you? That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, you know, you, you know who you're usurping here? See, God did this choosing. God put this person here. I just happen to be the person. Hey, you want to try to replace me because I did this? Well, then I understand. But if God did this, you got a bigger issue than me to deal with. You, you, you are biting off, we might say, you're biting off way more than you can chew, boys. And notice, by the way, what we're going to use here, and this is going to be the key in all of this, is a sensor. Now, we're not talking about the kind of thing that goes off when a room is dark and it's been alarmed. A sensor is, in the simplest sense, supposed to be made out of gold. Gold, by the way, is supposed to resemble or represent faith, is the idea. And, and that even takes us into the New Testament where it tells us that even when you're challenged with a trial, it is to purify that faith that's of greater worth than gold, which pierces even though we're fired by fire. That's the idea. And understand what God says is, I want prayer to be about faith. Now, not listen, and please hear me. There's two different ways on that, because there are some people that the whole thing's about having faith in your faith, and that's just kind of the silliest thing I've ever heard. That's like, hey, you know, I believe in the power of praying for my prayer. It's like it's the person that you trust. Faith means trust. Who are you trusting? Now, here's the difference. If I really trusted God, that he was not only strong, but that he was also smart, that I wouldn't be telling God what my dreams are and how he had to fill them. See, see, faith doesn't move the hand of God. Faith opens my hands to receive what he already has in him. That's the point. So understand, there's that, that idea that if we were to take the right sensor, and it's a golden sensor, throughout all of scripture it's supposed to be a golden sensor. We're going to find out 250 of these aren't. But it's a golden sensor that would be the idea of something that's faith. And then this idea of prayers. And understand, this was the way it worked. We were in an enclosed tent. And as we were in an enclosed tent, the person would come to light that. They would stand at this altar that was golden. There was wood that was covered in gold. And it was called the altar of incense. And what would happen is, is they would take these coals and they would put the incense in the coals. And they would put them on this. And in this enclosed room, the, the smoke, the incense would rise up would fill the ceiling, and then would descend once the ceiling was full. Does that make sense? It would look an awful lot like the glory of the Lord, because up to this point, the glory of the Lord always seems to be a cloud that covers the tent. I get the idea here. So here we are praying, and if we were one of these people, we wouldn't just light it and then run out and go, well, I'll wait till it's done. We would stand there, and we would want to, we would supposed to be pouring forth our heart for people. Not for ourselves, but for people as this is, as long as this is lit. And what happens, as I'm rising this up, and it's a unique smell, he tells us, you're not allowed to duplicate this or replicate this anywhere. This smell is only supposed to be for this. So you light it, it comes up, 
in this plume. It fills the ceiling like the glory of God, and then it starts to descend. And by the time you are done, by the time I am done, we walk out of there smelling like that. We don't just walk out of there with our hands with a little bit of something on it. The whole room fills up. And when we walk out there, someone walks over and goes, you've been praying, haven't you? I can smell a difference. Because it's coming off of you now. Because you were in there long enough to not just blah, 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 in Jesus' name, hope that's good enough. But now you're there to listen too. That's what prayer is supposed to be. Prayer was supposed to be something that by faith I laid it out on my God. I know this pleases you. And this scent is supposed to be so good. You're like, that smells good. I says, that's what I want for you. I want what I'm praying. I want you to go, now that's good. And I want it not just to fill your throne room, but I want it to saturate me so that when I walk out of here, this is an entirely different story. But I want it to be a prayer of faith because if it's a prayer just demanding things, I'm lighting a, an obscene foreign incense. Do you get it? Now hear me on this, because he says, so let's, let's let the censor tell the difference, okay? Let's let the censor be the one, the thing that proves who's right and who's wrong in this. Who God has called in this position or not. And you know what's amazing? Is every one of these guys not only bites the hook, they are convinced they will be validated. You put that fire in, good. Verse 8 says, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it a small thing? They're going to turn around and do the same thing. Remember how they said you take too much upon himself and then he says, well, you take too much upon yourself. So is it really a small thing that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself? Notice the bring you near to himself. You were already near to God. If your focus was on God, then you would be content because you're already near him. If what you really wanted was to be close to God, you should be so stoked with what you're called to. Because you're already there. If it's to be near people, that's another story altogether. Is it a small thing that God called you to himself to do the work of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to serve them? And that he brought you near to himself, you and all your brothers, the sons of Levi with you? But are you also now trying to seek the priesthood as well? Don't you realize, and please hear me, don't you realize the gift you already have? If being near to God isn't enough, nothing will be. There is nothing left. Because being near to God is the one place where in His presence is the fullness of joy. and His right hand pleasures forevermore. Where are you going to go to get it elsewhere? The applause of men? A bigger group of people? Will that really make it? People that will actually be willing to hear your dangerous, venomous diatribes so as you gather your crew like another Korah? Is that what you want? Don't you realize what you already have? God is in the center of the camp, available 24-7, just waiting for you. But you're trying to get it elsewhere? Therefore, verse 11, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. You need to know who your battle's with. God's the one who did this. Who's Aaron that you complain against him? You know what the funny part is? Just a few chapters back, it was Aaron and Miriam who was doing the same thing. Do you remember that? Wouldn't it be easy if you were Moses at this moment to turn back to your brother who apparently seems to be with you and say, 
How do you like it now? This is what I felt from you just a couple chapters ago. Maybe not like that, but you get the idea. Hey, now listen, in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, because there's no authority except from God. Oh, that sounds lovely. And you go, oh, yeah, but they don't understand the government we deal with. Oh, try dealing with Rome back in... And he writes it to the Romans back 2,000 years ago. So Moses, by the way, then sent to call Dathan and Abiram. Remember those two, the brothers that were part of the Reubenites, sons of Eliav? But they said, we're not even coming up. By this point, that little talk that Korah had started has gone to a place where now they have no interest in the authority God has placed in Moses. Moses hasn't earned that authority, but please, please, please hear me. Authority will never be granted by God without responsibility, and they're equal. God doesn't give authority without responsibility, and he doesn't give responsibility without authority. So if you think, how come the man gets to do this, or how come that guy gets to do that, or how come whatever, it's like, listen, you need to know, for every authority that's given, there is a responsibility that is coupled with it you stand before God with. And these people are like, we have no interest in that. And listen to their response, verse 15, or 13. Is it a small thing? Remember how, you just, how Moses had just said that? Well, is it a, you know, is it a small thing that, I mean, that to be with God, that you have to do this too? Or they're like, oh yeah, well, is it a small thing that you brought us up out of the land flowing of milk and honey? Egypt was the land flowing of milk and honey? I'm sorry, that was the place of bondage. But it is amazing how we can romanticize a horrible place in our life, like it was the glory days. You big jerk. Things were fine until you stepped into my life and got me like free from heroin and sexual addiction and fighting whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, but you know, now look at where I'm at. You want to be a prince over us? Is that what you think? You keep acting like a prince. You never brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. We didn't get our fields. We didn't get our vineyards. And then he says, will you put out the eyes of these men? Now, any part of you that kind of goes, what? Like I just got like whiplash. It's like talking to an excited teen. It's like, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What? what? That like, was that a, is this a new subject? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, how? Well, understand, the Egyptians had ways of dealing with people that they considered insurrectionists people that stood up against Egypt. And one of the ways was that they put out their eyes. See, it's really hard to lead a revolt if you can't see where you're going. Right, P? Not that you're leading a revolt, just P's had a lot of surgery on his eyes lately. God has this way, by the way, of stopping people or proving that a heart could be so overwhelmed. And again, that's, we're not saying that of you, P. Um, showing that even in the place where God would do that, people will still be driven by their own lusts and anger. Like, for instance, if you remember with Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels blind them on their way trying to get in the door, and it doesn't stop them. As soon as they're coming to arrest and to take over Israel, Elijah brings them into Samaria proper, blinds them on their way in, and then gives them their sight back, and then they're there surrounded, and they're, they're like, we could kill you, but we won't. go. And instead, instead, make them a feast. Could you imagine? Your enemies came to kill you, but instead they were blinded, brought into like you know your headquarters, like you know your naval base, and then you're like, let's make them a feast and send them home. But they still will fight them later. I always wondered about the guy Malchus, 
who was the high priest's servant who got his ear whacked off by Peter, and then Jesus has to like pick off the ear from the ground, wipe it off a little bit, and then stick it back on his head. Does the guy still arrest him after that? Would you? Well, I'm just following orders. Listen. You and all your company are gathered together against the Lord, verse 11. Who is Aaron? Dathan and Abiram are like, we're not going to come. The land that we came from, that was the good land. And back then, by the way, we plucked out eyes. And I think you're going to do the same. Notice, by the way, they're just, they keep dragging Moses back to Egypt. Moses now got angry. He said, don't respect their offering. I've done nothing against them. It's interesting. It's the same term that's used in Genesis 4.4 when we read about Cain and Abel. Well, by the way, we, we, don't, we don't just read that God didn't respect Cain's offering, but he didn't respect Cain and his offering. What Cain was doing was such a work of his own flesh. God wasn't going to respect him or his offering for that. Literally, the term for what it's with is the word, ready? A few words I'll give you. Sha'ah. Can you say sha'ah? It's almost like sha'ah. Sha'ah. And sha'ah is kind of close in that sense, because what it really means is to take a good look at. Sha'ah. Think of it this way. Sha'ah, Shema. Sha'ah, take a good look at. Shema, take a good listen to. Does that make sense? So Sha'ah, and it's like, to, to respect them means he's like, he's not really giving it a careful look. God's like, I'm not even going to look at that. I know better than that. Moses said to Korah, tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you as well as Aaron. So let's start putting this to close. 17, look at this with me. Each of you take your censer, put incense in it, each of you bring a censer before the Lord, 250 censers, both you and Aaron, each with a censer. So each man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense in it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron, and Korah gathered. How many? Who did Korah gather in verse 19? You tell me. All the congregation? Two plus million people? This one troublemaker now has gathered the sea of Israelites? Yep against the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord appeared to who? The hand. God's not going to let any of you not see this. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and he said, Step aside, I'll blast them all. Now you're thinking, why would God do this? Because he really wants to show the congregation, hear me, that Moses was more than just a guy who could speak, although he would try to argue with God he couldn't. He wasn't just a water splitter. Moses was a man with a broken heart for the people. And I wonder if that moment, and what's interesting is the people aren't going to be swayed by this, but yet they should be. God's like, you know, Moses, if you step aside, I'll kill them all. And Moses is like, no way. I am not stepping aside. I want these people safe. Would you still pick Korah at that moment? Would you still pick his crew? Do you think they would do that for you? And I've learned this, by the way. If you arm everyone in your household to shoot, sooner or later you're going to shoot each other. But notice in verse 22, Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. Do you see that? That's number two, fall on your faces. And then they spoke again. I think there's something to learn about that. O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, 
Shall one man sin and you be angry with the whole congregation? Do you really want to punish everybody for that? Now, every one of them, by the way, I want to remind you, stood against Moses. And if Moses wasn't the meekest man that had lived, if Moses wasn't the kind of guy that really, if Moses was full of himself, it would have been easy to say, be my guest, be my guest, be my guest. You know, those guys will not be trying when they're all just sit there frying, be my guest. See, that's why God saved me. I'm that strange. God will set up Moses over and over again for you to see his broken heart for you. He'll do that with you too, by the way. He will set you up for you to show your broken heart for someone. But I warn you, those are never fun moments. Those are very, very painful moments. But that's the key. So the Lord spoke to Moses. Okay, well, I'll tell you what then. Speak to the congregation and tell them to get away from the tents of Korodathan and Abiram. Notice that On guy isn't there anymore. I wonder if somehow in all of this, maybe, maybe On switched sides. I can only hope that he was on the right side while we were done. Then Moses rose. Thank you for that snicker. Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. So now look at the two sides. You have Moses and remember those 70 guys Moses had to pick for help? Isn't it cool that they stood with him? So there's Moses and his brother and these 70 guys that are with him. And then there's everybody else. If you ever feel like it's you and me against the world, this is kind of one of those moments. But God said, tell everyone to get out of those tents. And this is perfect advice, by the way. Listen. Don't touch anything of theirs. Lest you be consumed. Did you see that word there in verse 26? It's a key word here in all their sins. Now, please hear me. In Romans 16, 17, it says, I urge you, brothers, note those who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine you learned and avoid them. In Titus chapter 3, verse 10, it tells us to, to reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. God knows how dangerous this can be. But when God said, tell the congregation, do you know where he went? Moses could have called a meeting outside of that area, but you know where he went? Look at verse 25. He arose, Moses rose, and went to Dathan and Abiram. Why is that important? If any of you look when you think these guys are going down to the pit with their families in front of them. But when Moses went to Dathan and Abiram, he didn't just speak to the congregation outside their tents because he told them to get out of the tents. He spoke to the ones that were in there too. He spoke to the wife and kids and said, you need to get out of this. You need to get away because this is about to go down. So they all went and stood. No. But would you, I mean, get the idea here. Corey's got his crew, remember that? And he's gathered the entire congregation of the people. Do you think he thinks he's right? Would you gather the entire congregation to get slammed? To get humiliated? to show how big of a jerk you really are? Would you want to do that? I kind of get the idea here that Korah really believed he was right. But that didn't make him right. So Moses says in verse 28, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all of these works, and have not done any by my own will. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, we'll read, by the way, God says this as he speaks to Moses, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters and I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them. And if you were Moses like me, I would be like, awesome. Go get them, God. 
and deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land of a, to a good and large land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of Israel has, uh, the, the children of Israel has come to me and I have also seen their oppression in which the Egyptians oppressed them. That sounds really good till we get to verse 10. Come now, therefore I send you to Pharaoh. And there's a part of me that goes, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You were coming down to do this. I was all for that. <clears throat> God says, yes, I'm coming down through you, buddy. You can see Moses going, I was way good with it until you put me in the equation. Is there anything like you? Remember back in Matthew 10 when Jesus says, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, so pray that the, the Lord of the harvest would send harvesters. And we're like, yes, Lord, send harvesters. And then Jesus says, go. And you're like, what do you mean, go? It's like you said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send harvesters. Guess what I'm doing? I'm sending harvesters. You're like, no, you're not. You're sending me. And Jesus is saying, yes. Guess what you are now? You are a harvester. And you're like, that's not what I signed up for. Jesus said, you signed up to be my student. This is part of the class. Here's the funny thing. When you're praying for others, know it or not, you're praying for yourself. But you're volunteering to be a part of the solution. Hear me on that. You're volunteering to be a part of the solution. Do you have any respect for a person who simply complains about things but isn't willing to be a part of the solution? So here's what Moses says. Now that I've, now that I have all your attention, if these guys like die naturally, you know, like everyone else, common fate, which by the way, everyone else is going to, almost everyone else is going to die from something pretty supernatural soon. Or they're visited by the common fate of men, whatever that is. Well, then you then just walk away. Do whatever you want to do. But if the Lord is something kind of cool and new, like, I don't know, like the ground opens up and like swallows them completely, and you didn't even know the ground had a mouth. But guess what? You're about to learn about the lips of the earth. Well, then, verse 30, notice, by the way, you know what you'll understand as a result of that? Look at what it says. That these men have done what? Rejected the Lord. Notice he isn't trying to validate himself. Can I just say, it's a dangerous thing when we think it's our job to defend ourselves. Jesus didn't even defend himself. If you start defending yourself, you'll spend your whole life doing it. And people were like, well, what about, what about, what about? It's just going to hand that over to the Lord. What's fascinating is what gets, what gets chosen here. Please hear me in this. came to pass, and literally in the Hebrew, as he was putting the period on the end of his sentence, God, this thing happened. The ground opened its mouth and swallowed him up. And this is so perfect. Please hear me in this. Ready? Do you know what happened to them? They got swallowed up by the world. That's what happened. And that's exactly what happens with Korah. It gets swallowed up by the world. And you know what? That makes sense. Because it tells us in 1 John 2.15, don't love the world or anything of the world, because the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, they're not from the Father, but they're from the world. And the world and its works will be destroyed or passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Listen, in 1 John 5.19, it says, we know that we're of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And it all makes sense. Do you realize who the original Korah was. The original Korah was Satan. Who said, 
I will exalt myself. I will stand at the hill of the north. I will sit above the congregation. Who does this God think he is? That Don't you realize I'm pretty cool looking? God's like, I'm your creator. You can see him going, so? How do we overcome this? Listen. Remember those sensors? 1 John 4, 4 says this, listen. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They're of the world, and they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. But please hear me. One chapter later, 5, 4, it says, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You remember a right sensor? What's a right sensor made out of? Pure gold. See, who is he that overcomes the world? He who really believes that Jesus is the Son of God. That's what God's looking for. You see, this whole thing is saying, how come you have this and I don't? But if I really trusted God was in control, I wouldn't be full of selfish ambition. I would just be busy being faithful with what God's called me to. And God could put me there if he wants to. So what happens here? You want that victory? I want it with you. I want to have a pure, beautiful censer of gold full of the incense of total surrender, laying it before God and letting God do what he wants to. Verse 34, it says, Then all the Israel fled at their cry, and they said, Let the earth, Lest the earth swallow us up. Where do you run when the earth opens its mouth? You really think if you run to another place, the earth can't open its mouth there? You'd be better off like trying to find some balloons or something, or trying to flap your wings or something at least. First response is always save yourself here. Oh yeah, and remember how God was going to fire those other 250? Verse 35. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. Ah! You don't want to be fired like this. And then the Lord spoke to Moses. And here's how this closes. We only go to verse 40. The Lord spoke to Moses. This is tell Eleazar. Interesting. Not Aaron, but Eleazar. Do you know why? Eleazar is going to be the priest that takes him into the promised land. Remember, Aaron's going to die before that point. Aaron won't be able to go into the promised land, but Eleazar will. So, hey, have your son, Aaron, pick up those censers. Because they're holy. Scatter the fire a distance away. The censers of these men who sinned against their own souls, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar because they represented, I'm sorry, they presented them before the Lord. Therefore, they're holy. They shall be assigned to the children of Israel. Verse 39. So Eliezer the priest took the bronze censers with those that were burned up and presented and they hammered out a covering for the altar. What's wrong with these censers? They're bronze. Bronze is a symbol of judgment. And I get it. If my faith is not in Christ, and therefore the incense is not that of my surrender, do you know what I'll have? I will have an incense censer of judgment. And I'll tell God, oh, come on, what's wrong? I'm better than that guy. Look at how I'm judging here. I'm I'm better than that person. Who does that person think they are? I'm entitled to. 
and the incense becomes a foul stench. What's interesting, by the way, is there's no definite article when we read they didn't grab the fire or the incense. And I'm not too sure, it doesn't make clear, but I'm not too sure they grabbed the same incense or the only fire that was ever to light the incense, by the way, was supposed to be a coal from the fire of this altar, which, by the way, is supposed to lead us to the cross, the place of surrender so we could be with God. And what happens when we don't pull our fire from the cross? What happens when we don't pull the incense of our own surrender? Do you know what it is? It's a selfish, self-centered, self-driven, self-exalting thing. And it's nothing like what looks like Jesus. I get it. Notice in verse 40 it says, Let this thing, this, remember how they're going to hammer it and cover the altar, to be a memorial of, to the children of Israel that no outsider who was a descendant of Aaron should come near to offer incense before the Lord that he might become like Korah and his companions just as the Lord had said to him through Moses. Now please hear me on this. According to the traditions, the Jewish traditions, and I can't tell you this is scripture, I can just tell you this is what has been taught for at least 1600 years. That, well, first of all, I know this, that the fire on the altar is supposed to be continual. As long as the camp is set up, that fire doesn't go out. Which tells me that you can put a cover on the thing that just covered the top. Because how in the world do you cover the whole thing in bronze and keep a fire going? You get what I'm saying? What, what's been said is, is that the entire sides of this thing were covered in these bronze plates. And I kind of wondered if maybe they could have had gold if they didn't really spend it all on a golden cow not that long ago. Because there was a lot of gold that kind of left back then. Remember that? ground up into powder, made him drink it, chances are you're not going to use it later. Do you know until recent what was used as mirrors? Pounded bronze. See, pounded bronze, when it's pounded and on fire, when it actually is, it becomes fairly transparent, but it's also very reflective. So what if it is as this is the case traditionally? That means when you went to go and offer your offering before God, do you know what you saw? You saw yourself is what you saw. The sides of that altar. And by the way, can I just say that in regards to the cross? It's so easy to hear a message sometimes, and if this message was all, you just need to change this, and you need to change that, and you need to change this, if you're around your friends or your husband and wife, your elbow could get sore doing this. You got that right, you got that right. Writing it in big letters, and okay, I just want to make sure you saw that note. You know, I mean, that kind of, that kind of, but it's like, hey, you got to see yourself at the cross. If you don't see yourself at the cross, what's going to happen is, hey, then you could be busy trying to take someone else there, but we all need them. And by the time this is done, from this point on, interesting, what we'll see in the latter part, which we'll connect with next, the next chapter, is that people die, there's 14,000 plus, die in a plague. And interesting, because up to this point, there's only been one thing called the plague up to this point. And it's the same thing when a king will actually offer incense, and he shouldn't be doing it either, what happens to him? And I look at this and I realize that if I were to go to the cross... And say, you know what? My children need the cross. My wife needs the cross. Our church needs the cross. But if I can't see myself there, I'm in trouble. You know, I need a Savior like you do. And I need the same Savior that you do. See, at the cross, my God saw my sin and your sin. And he sent Jesus to die there so that that beautiful, perfect God would suffer my heinous death so that all my sin could be punished. I understand Christianity is not an it. Christianity is a person. 
And if you think, I'm going to try it, or I'll give it a shot, then you're not trying Christianity the way we should, which is we're trying the person. Remember the whole idea of the person comes with a politic versus the law which comes with a judgment? These guys had no relationship, and look what they did. They pulled out a law out of it, and they became punished for it. Is that what you want? Hey, listen. As we go to prayer, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as I have, by the way, signed, sealed, delivered, is there a core in you? Someone is comparing you with others. Looking to see why that person is. Or, hey, by the way, you're all aware of the fact that the Lord's going to give everybody at least one idiot boss before you die. Are you aware of that, right? And if you're a boss, pray for yourself. Because there's got to be someone at least in your life where you're absolutely convinced you know more than, but you still have to submit to anyways. If you're a teen, that will always be your parents. And it's amazing how smart they get once you become late, older. It's always going to be somebody, because you can't, submission isn't submission until you disagree. It's compliance. Please hear me. There's no Korah in a fruitful promised land. Korah dies before we get there. You want to ruin your marriage? Put a Korah in it. You want to ruin your friendships? Put a Korah in it. You want to be a terrible employee? Put a Korah in it. You want to have a terrible, you want to ruin your ministry? Put a Korah in it. You want to mess up the church? Put a Korah in it. You want to be miserable? Put a Korah in it. Because you know it's amazing how miserable we are when we put our Korahs in it. Or let them die. Let them get swallowed up. Good riddance. That's my heart's desire. But if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or you're not sure what that is, Jesus paying the price on the cross for your and my sins, raising again on the third day, and gives you the choice to accept his offer, his innocence for your guilt, his forgiveness, making you brand new. If that is you, I'm going to give you the choice to say yes to Jesus today. You could become brand new in this room right now. As he removes you from the land of bondage, out of the hand of the enemy, and he starts to move you to the place of great fruitfulness. That's the choice we make. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text and very much a stark warning, no doubt. Lord, no doubt as we look at this, there are ashes of more people that were full of selfish ambition, full of entitlement, who had gathered a crew. And I pray right now first for the believer in this room, myself included. God, if there's any part of us that's busy gathering a crowd, drawing listening ears to some complaint we have about another individual, Lord, take us back to Matthew 18 and let us do it right. Go to them alone. And if that isn't the case, start bringing a couple people. But Lord, for the purpose of gaining our brother, not winning an argument. Lord, there's no place in your body for us to fight each other. I know that's not your intent. That's not your will. And I pray right now for every believer in here, God, that you would slay the Korah in every one of us. We don't want to be consumed by the world. We don't want to be swallowed up by this world. And it's under the sway of the evil one. And it's always about me first, and I'm entitled, and I should, and I should. Why? How come them? Oh, God, slay that part of us so that we could actually have the genuine sensor of a genuine faith in you that trusts that where you want us, you'll put us. And the incense God of total surrender that comes with that faith. This is our lives in your hands. Put us where you want. Use us how you want. Be it however magnificent, magnanimous, or mundane, or monotonous, we trust you. 
And Lord, please, let us not compare ourselves to others. But rather, let us humble ourselves before you. And God, I pray right now that if there is any core in us, slay it. And God, in that, if there's any part of us, Lord, that's gathering a posse or gathering a crew, slay it, Lord. Shut it down if that's what we're trying to do. And I pray, Lord, if there is, myself included, Lord, uh, any of us who are quicker, Lord, to speak than fall on our face, put us in the proper way, Lord, that our hearts would genuinely be broken. Even for those, Lord, who would stand against us, even in those moments when it seems like the whole world is standing against us, Lord, please, please write. Break our hearts the way they should be for others. That even if you were to say, I would smite them, and there would be a part of us in the flesh that would say, oh, be my guest, can I watch? But rather, Lord, we'd fall on our faces and say, Lord, I want to stand in the gap between the living and the dead and say, please, have mercy even as you have with us. And Lord, while you're dealing with the believers in this room, if he included, Lord, I pray right now that if there be any in this room that know they have a choice to make to accept the gift you've offered at the cross, and now that they've been brought to it, they see their own reflection upon their approach, show them, Lord, that the gift isn't just the cross, but the empty tomb, the new life that comes on the other side of that cross. And if that's you in this room and God is offering you not only forgiveness and not only the death of the person that stands against him, but a brand new everything, a brand new life, a brand new heart. And you want to say yes to that. I'm going to pray this prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be mine. And here it is. God, I am a sinner. Just like everyone else, I'm a sinner. And I'm not going to try it. I want you. And I I know that you punish sin, but because you love me, you punished all my sin on the cross of your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, who died on the cross on my behalf and rose again on the third day, just like you promised. And so, Lord, I gladly say, Jesus, be my Savior. As you died for me on the cross, be my Savior. And as you rose again on the third day, be my Lord. Lead me, love me, guide me. And as you do, make me the person you intend. Deliver me, Lord, even from myself, I pray. Jesus, in your name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.